Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Thank you for checking out Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Before we start our very first episode, I want to take one minute to tell you about myself. When I was a kid... I read every book I could get my hands on. I'd disappear for hours in the house, and when I finished a book, I'd close the cover and wonder, how could anyone do this? How could someone create a whole world and put it on the page? And I'd imagine what the author was like and what it would be like to have a conversation together. Later, I had a career in business, but in my late 30s, I started writing a novel. I published this novel, then I published a couple more, and over the years at book festivals and other events, I started to meet some writers whose work I love And I got to have those conversations that I used to imagine. And it turned out the conversations were even better than I'd hoped for. And each one was so different. This show is about bringing those conversations to you. So let's get right to it. I'm happy to bring you Jennifer Egan. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt, and I am so happy today to have with me Jennifer Egan, one of our greatest and most important writers. Her debut novel, The Invisible Circus, was made into a movie of the same name starring Cameron Diaz. She followed that up with Look at Me, a National Book Award finalist, which got her a ton of buzz at the time. I remember seeing a profile with Jennifer on Charlie Rose in 2001 when that came out. 2010, already she was a big star, but followed that up with A Visit from the Goon Squad, which won the Pulitzer Prize among many other awards, and was the most talked about novel, not only of that year, but for many years, one of those amazing special novels that comes along only once in a while, and firmly established Jennifer as one of the all-time greats. She's also served a term as president of PEN America, and we want to ask her a bit about that as well. Her latest book, The Candy House, is a companion novel to Goon Squad, and is a terrific, terrific book, as you would expect, of someone of her talent. But the number one thing that anyone who knows Jennifer Egan says about Jennifer Egan is that she is just the best person you could ever know. I have many people who attest to that. So Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So we were emailing leading up to this and we met a few years ago at a festival. Over the course of the emails, I realized you go by Jenny. I do. We'll we'll go with that. (laughs) Now, the other other thing I realized is that your favorite cocktail, at least of the moment, which is a feature of this show, is the Gold Rush. 
It is. Can you tell us a bit about that? And I will start making it here in the cocktail shaker. Sure. Well, actually, the Gold Rush is sort of a the more standard version of actually a drink that a friend of mine invented. Her name is Laura Kriska, and she's actually a writer also, um, has written an amazing business book about working across cultures. Um, but anyway, Laura invented a cocktail called the Chaos Corrector, which I think perhaps should have is, is, is misnamed because it actually has caused a fair amount of chaos. Um, in my life when I've had too many of them. But it's essentially a bourbon sour. But in her version, it has a, it has a twist um, that is really excellent. But anyway, what, she, what that drink made me realize is that I love bourbon sours. And a gold rush is also a bourbon sour made a little differently um, with honey and uh, as, as the sweetener as opposed to simple syrup um, and also some lemon juice. And the proportions are a little different, but it's wonderful. I'm doing a rough and dirty version of this, and uh, this is perfectly timed because we're getting into fall here. I've made the switch over to bourbon from vodka and gin, so this is perfect. Bourbon is I, – I really had not understood what a great uh, spirit it is. I'm not much of a spirit drinker, really, um, but I – I don't know. I feel like I found my I found my alcohol. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> you know, we really should be getting a uh, product placement thing on this show because it's like I can drink bullet bourbon and win Pulitzers like Jennifer Egan. That would be. There you are. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. You. you too. Whew. All right. We'll see how long I can stay coherent <laughs> if I keep drinking that. Very good, Doug. Thank you. I, well, I did bartend for a while. Now I now I bartend just privately at the home. You did that really effortlessly. Well, I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> so beginning at the beginning, you were born in Chicago, moved yes. to San Francisco at a young age. True. And I think I have read you really fell in love with music during your San Francisco years. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, not in, in any way as a practitioner. So I don't play an instrument. I can't read music. But... I think I, you know, I was, I grew up very much in the 70s, um, wishing I had even been born earlier because we moved to San Francisco in 1969. So it was a kind of wild time mm-hmm. in San Francisco. My mother and stepfather, whom I moved with, had absolutely nothing to do with any of that. He was a businessman um, and they were, you know, by no means hippies or, you know, even a, a pro- approved of hippies. Um, but it felt like something very exciting, which I even sensed as a little kid. And then by the time I was a teenager, I was longing for that time, which was gone, somewhat via the music. So I was a huge Who fan, Stones fan. Um, You know, it was a great decade for rock and roll albums, um, and especially concept albums, because they were, you know, these were LPs. You opened up a double album like a book. There were pages with lyrics on them. And so I think there was something a little more, um, at least on the surface, sort of innately literary about a record album and it's and it's you know accompanying materials um and so i felt defined by music as i guess many teenagers do uh but then the funny thing that happened at the very in the very late 70s is that punk rock came along and that was such a repudiation was that a big movement within the san francisco area or is that still san francisco is still 
dominated by the you know Grateful Dead and other. Well, of course, that never ended and still hasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it was a huge thing in the Bay Area, and I had a friend who got really into it. And in a way, really, a lot of teens were at least spectators in that world. There was a very famous club called the Mabuhay Gardens, which is I think pretty legendary. I think there's even a plaque um, where it used to be, and lots of bands played there at early stages. I think Blondie played there. I think the Police played there. I could be wrong. Um, I know Iggy Pop did. So I would go to that to hear that music, and it it just couldn't have been more different from the 60s music. And I think what all of that did for me was, was give me a sense of how much music defines a moment and expresses a moment and what a what an amazing vehicle it is into subculture. What kind of kid would you say you were back in those days? Were you kind of into the theater, sporty music, obviously? Well, it's interesting. I think in a way kids were not as specialized then. There mm-hmm. there weren't there weren't as many organized activities. Um I mean I was always a reader. I think I was I was a little bit of an awkward kid. You know, I I was the product of what felt like many divorces and remarriages, and it was that era when divorce really sort of happened in a huge way in American life. But there was a lot we didn't know about how to divorce yet. So, for example, you know, my mother and stepfather moved to San Francisco when I was seven, and my father, a lawyer, allowed that to happen. That really wouldn't happen nowadays. I mean, people mm-hmm. I have, you know, many divorced friends and they they stay, you know, the whole idea of co-parenting didn't really exist then. At least I never saw it. So I was, you know, as you would expect from someone who was a stepkid in two different families, a little bit of a more of an observer, a little hesitant, kind of self-conscious. That's, that's interesting. Did you have a moment bringing this into your writing? I remember seeing John Irving give a talk one time, and he said he had a moment when he knew that he wanted to be and likely could be a writer when it was a self-observation when he was in high school that he liked alone time and and really protected his alone time. So he was a social kid, and he had a good time in school. I think he was a good athlete, a wrestler or something. But he realized he loved alone time. It was was something he sought, and he thought, you know what, I think— Maybe writing is a thing. Did you have a moment in your San Francisco days when you thought, you know, I, I actually this might be the path for me? You know, it's such an interesting question about being alone. I don't. I I also loved being alone, and I remember there was a period where I loved days when I didn't have anything to do after school, and I just would come home and like make a sandwich and hit the tether ball by myself that we had in our backyard. And I loved that. I didn't find it lonely. But I feel like as I got older and very socially anxious, anxious to fit in and be cool and all that stuff, it made me not able to appreciate being alone because I was always worried about what I was missing and what everyone else was doing. And it really, I think it sort of robbed me. That anxiety robbed me of the pleasure of aloneness. And I think about that now because of social media oh, yeah, and like how much- like the snap maps and things like that. I, my know, kids are younger than yours, but I'm already hearing about these kinds of exclusionary things that can happen with, with social media. It seems like a nightmare, frankly. I mean, it was already hard, and now it just feels like one is confronted with what's happening elsewhere constantly. But anyway, it took me a while to reconnect with my aloneness. And I think what what it really required was that I took a gap year and I traveled by myself in Europe with a backpack. And I really was— This was before or after college? 
this was before college. This was after high school. And so during that period, I really was quite alone. I mean, it was a communal environment because I was staying in youth hostels and I, I met people and traveled with them, but then we would go our separate ways. And it was interestingly in that period that I realized I wanted to be a writer. And so I relate very much to what John Irving said, because I think that the discovery of one's own company and of the pleasure of being alone with it is essential to that choice to be a writer. But it took me it took me a while to get there. And again, I think about it. I think if it were today, going to Europe with a backpack wouldn't have given me that aloneness I've just described. Mm-hmm. I would have been, you know, taking it, pictures, sharing them, finding out where other people were. Would I really have made that discovery? I actually don't know. It's nice to find a balance. When I go to write, I love that time to myself. It's creative time. It's quiet time. Uh, Scott Terrell is a friend, and he he was saying that he tells his wife when he's going to go write, he's like, all right, I'm heading upstairs to spend some time with my imaginary friends now. And uh, I think if you're going to be a writer, you have to embrace, you have to really want that, that time to yourself. But so after the backpack trip, you then go to UPenn. I went to UPenn. I mean, the backpack trip ended sort of messily because I actually had a lot of panic attacks and it was it was a little bit that aloneness was scary. And I guess that's one thing I would say is that being alone is not always comfortable, but it's sometimes you still make amazing discoveries. That is young to head around. I mean, I can't. My, my oldest is almost 13. I don't picture myself at 17 or 18 sending, letting, letting him go to Europe. I, well, I don't know. Maybe we're raising them slower than we did then. Imagine letting them go to Europe from San Francisco. So nine-hour time difference, extremely long flight, and, of course, no cell phones and no internet. So my mm. mother basically just had to hope I would call now and then. And when I did call, I had to wait at an international calling center pay, wait in line, and I might get no answer or a busy signal. So the, it was an, a kind of aloneness that becomes extremely hard to conceive And you went of. by yourself, not with a friend. I went by myself. Yeah. My friends all, all went to college. So um, it was, it, I guess it was somewhat adventurous, although I think plenty of other people were doing it, just knowing that I happened to know. Um, and then I did go to UPenn, and it felt like the most cosseted, cuddly, safe place in the world compared to what I had been doing. And that was so great, actually. And I, you know, I'm, I'm still close to so many friends from that time. I had such a great experience. I think I appreciated it so profoundly because of that aloneness that preceded it and because I really knew what I wanted to do. Oh, it's an incredibly maturing experience. So then I know you were up at New York City interning because we have a mutual friend, John Stossel, And you are also, in addition to being a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist, you are a journalist, but you interned with Stossel for a period of time in New York. I did. You know, that was an amazing summer. So it was a competitive internship and it was a paid internship, which wasn't that common then. Was he at ABC then? He was at ABC. Yeah, Yeah, he was at, um, uh, he was working with uh, Barbara Walters and, um, oh God, what was that? News program. Oh, help us, Mike. Dateline, Nightline. What was the no, 2020? 2020? 2020. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So he was the consumer reporter at 2020. And um, and so I got this internship, which was just thrilling. And I rented with my friend from Penn, who was working interning at the UN. We rented a an NYU professor's apartment, and we had the time of our lives. And um, I my, my subject when working for John, with whom I had very little contact, by the way, um, was not low and non-alcoholic beer. <laughs> and so it was so funny because I was just an intern, but I was calling these these places saying, you know, I'm from ABC News 2020. And 
huge quantities of low and non-alcoholic beer were just pouring into ABC News. And it was it was amazing to me the power of invoking ABC News. Like, they didn't care who I was or how little power I had. They wanted me to have their product. That's um, funny. That reminds me of a story with Stossel. He, so he was doing consumer stuff even when I got to know him years later. And he did some story on children's bathtub toys or something. And then they have dangerous, I can't remember the name, but like, the, like chemicals on the bath toys or something that can you know be harmful to kids. So he did this whole thing, and, and the result of his analysis was it is harmful to kids. And at the end, he's like, he knew we had kids. Like, hey, I've got all these extra bath toys. You were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so that he sent is them hilarious. over. One other quick one on Stossel, who I, I, I really do adore Stossel. He's, he's a great guy. His son wrote a college essay on what it was like to be raised in New York City as the child of a libertarian. Oh <laughs> and the challenges gosh. that come with that. His so. son seems like such an interesting guy, actually. I saw an article about him on, in an airplane um, news uh, magazine, and I thought, it's so it's so interesting. It seems like he's carried certain traits of his father, but also reacted against him. One more um, thing that I remember working on was actually that had an impact on my fiction. I ended up writing about a character who did this, was about food stylists and about all the fakery that goes into food styling. And it was so, somehow we were, searing beef in the Plaza Hotel <laughs> using basically just a sort of long metal strip that was, it's raw beef that is seared in strips with, you know, a piece of very hot metal. And we were doing this at the Plaza, or not we, I was observing, and set off smoke alarms and were forced, <laughs> were ordered to leave. Um, so there were a lot of really comic this is things. All, is this on camera? As well for well, ABC. Well, it wasn't live, but it was in the process of creating the story. And then we ended up in one of these sort of show kitchens with a woman whose specialty was dollops. And I'm not kidding. She was famous a dollop, for like her a dollops. dessert thing. She made dollops out of whatever. She just was really good at it. And um, and so I watched her make dollops, and I ended up writing about a food stylist in a story in my story collection called Emerald City. I always remembered working on that. It's great. You got you got to live richly, and then write. I was just uh, talking to someone else who, who a number of people have started their their novelist careers a little later in life. They've they sort of lived twenty years, but you've, you've got so many interesting stories, starting with your your overseas backpacking that have fed so many of your stories. Did you ever do like a an MFA or one of those Iowa workshop type? programs? You know, truthfully, I did not get in to any of those programs. So oh I, I did apply right out of college and I was rejected all around. I'm so glad that happened because the reason I was rejected was just that my work was, did, was it didn't show any promise. And I think I just wasn't ready to be doing workshops at that point. And I ended up with this scholarship to study in England. Um, so I, I probably, I mean, I wouldn't have gone to these programs anyway. Um, but but I, I definitely didn't feel confident about my writing ability. And I had no reason to really feel very confident. I was not a precocious writer. It really took me a while to figure out what I was doing. Were you leaning more toward journalism or novel writing at that time? Always fiction. I mean, that's yeah. always been my first love. And I did, you know, I took some fiction writing classes in college and I really enjoyed them and, you know, got some nice pats on the head. But um, but I, I just, my work didn't, there was no, there was nothing distinct about it. Um, so I never did get an MFA. I think, you know, they're useful. I, I, workshops are really useful. And in, in a way, I'm in one permanently because I have a writing group that meets regularly. And that's essentially what a workshop is. So I do I do love getting feedback, but I didn't actually spend two years in a community like that. 
your journalism, I wonder if you have a natural knack for it. It seems, and, and I don't know if you have thoughts on this, but your novel writing has, has a reputation for and really is predictive of culture and technology and things. I mean, many people have discussed that about your writing. Is there some sort of journalistic on the beat mentality that you have that consciously or unconsciously comes into your fiction? You know, it's interesting. I think I think fiction by anyone can end up being predictive just because of what fiction is, which as I think of it is a sort of artifact of the dream life of the culture around us. So any artist is synthesizing the moment that we all inhabit into something, whether it's, you know, visual art or film or TV or whatever. So and what we're doing is picking up on all kinds of strains and and factors about this moment that may not even be that obvious and may not even be obvious to us consciously. And so in a way, it's no surprise that sometimes we would pick up on things and imagine forward mm-hmm. in a way that ends up mimicking reality, because all we're doing is is following, uh, you know, trains and 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 factors that are that are present and and are leaning in some direction. So I don't think it is the journalistic side of me that does that. I think it's the unconscious engagement with the, the culture at large and just imagining forward freely. Yeah, I, whatever it is, you definitely have the gift for it and, and not everyone does. I, I remember loving Michael Crichton for he, a totally different kind of writer from you, but for some of these reasons of just being in the zeitgeist, like he wrote Disclosure about workplace harassment before that was a thing, or Rising Sun about Japan, or even Jurassic Park is largely about chaos theory and, and things that were sort of zeitgeisty at the time, but you constantly seem to be in the zeitgeist, whether it's Goon Squad or Look at Me with reality uh, TV and things like that, or, or and back to the Candy House, of course, with Own Your Unconscious. Yeah, I mean, it's so Look at Me is maybe the best example of what I'm talking about, which is that I knew I had someone who had come from elsewhere and was sort of a chameleon figure, and I wasn't sure who he would be, sort of what his reality would be. And so I interviewed some private detectives. I'm very interested. I always love talking to detectives. They're always interesting people. And they, all of them immediately said, well, is, is it like, is it possibly someone with terrorism in mind? And I hadn't even thought of that. Although, in a way, I should have, because I worked at the Tribeca Film Center in 1993 when the first World Trade Center bombing happened, which didn't really show much because it was subterranean, but it did kill several people. And I was facing, actually, the World Trade Center, so I was very aware of the emergency response. So somehow, having seen that and then what these gentlemen were saying to me, which is that absolutely there are people here there are people in terrorist cells which either are or are not directly linked to overseas entities. What year were you having these interviews? These were in. This was all in the nineties. Luckily, because your book came out in one. Yeah, well, that was that was a freak of timing. It came out the week of nine eleven. But anyway, my my guy in my book does fantasize overtly about blowing up the World Trade Center, which was pretty crazy. But in a way, mm. not because it had already happened and. People knew that there were folks around who wanted to do things like this. And I also spoke to um, FBI counterterrorism people. And a lot of the details that I used of his life were things they told me. Mm -hmm. So I was just drawing on existing data, I guess is another way of putting it, and just interpreting it in my own imaginative way. 
So your and then your book actually came out within a week of nine eleven. The same week it came wow. out September eighteenth. My gosh! So what what was what was even going on in the world there in, in the book world? Well, it was you know in a way it was a, a terrible time to publish a book because everyone pulled reviews and it, 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 everything was all about nine eleven. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean because I lived here at the time. I, I was, you know, I was sorry that my book was getting kind of lost in the shuffle, but I also was so, you know, just appalled by what had happened here and shocked to see the city turn into a war zone overnight that I, I too, was very distracted, mm-hmm. you know, but I had worked on the book for a long time. Um, and then it was interesting. At first, nothing happened from a book standpoint, but then after a couple of weeks, people started reaching out to me and saying, um, this is really strange. Your book seems to have some kind of odd resonances. And I, oh, another thing was I felt very guilty because I had written from the point of view of this man who initially fantasizes about destroying America, basically. And I had written, as I do with any character I write, from the point of view of very sympathetically. That's the only way to make it work. And so I felt sort of like, oh, my God, you know, I felt somehow implicated in mm. the state of mind that had produced this atrocity. Um, so it was it felt very complicated. Um, but but in the end, it you know, I think maybe it, it did get some attention for the book as the fall went on and people started to read it and, and notice these uncanny elements. Well, the Charlie Rose interview that I mentioned earlier, I remember that was probably soon after there, and uh, some of that was mentioned. But your research on that is a good segue into process. I'd like to talk a little bit about your process. Maybe let's start with research. I know Manhattan Beach, you did an enormous amount of research for that. But for all your books, you do interviews and primary, secondary research. Yeah, I mean, that's where I think the journalism has been very helpful. Um, it, it is It has given me a methodology and sort of a confidence about how to learn about things that I know nothing about. So in the case of Manhattan Beach, you know, it it involves all this technical stuff from the 30s and 40s, deep sea diving, shipbuilding, merchant sailing, um, you know, survival at sea. None of that did I know anything about. And I don't think I could have attempted it if I didn't have a journalism background. So that's probably the most extreme case. But the interesting thing is that since I write without a plan, and in a way that's mo- the most important thing to say about process, that my process at the beginning is very improvisational. So you don't outline? Only after I have a draft. Wow. Yeah. So if you think of improv, which I say having never done it on stage or musically, um, you know, the whole idea is that you're looking for sort of a line of action, and then the the actors, the performers kind of lean into that and just go with it. And that's kind of what I'm doing when I write fiction. If I just sit down and think, okay, here's a story that I'm going to write, it, it, I don't have good ideas, frankly. They're not, they're not interesting enough. And maybe that was the problem when I was a younger writer and my work wasn't very interesting. Maybe I was still trying to do it the, the other way, to make a plan and execute it. I hadn't figured out yet that the only way I can get to good material in myself is to, is to surprise myself. In other words, to do exactly the opposite of plan. So I write in a fairly uh, blind way by hand fiction, a journalism all on a computer, um, and I don't read over what I've written until the next day, and I read it over once just to get back into the flow, and I try to keep going for as long as I can like that. 
And so it back to the research question, it's very hard to know what to research when I don't know what my story is. So what I find is that there's often kind of a dialectic. With Manhattan Beach, I knew I wanted to write about the 30s and 40s. That's kind of all I knew at the beginning, kind of general, in New York. So I started by looking at a lot of photographs of New York from from those years, and I immediately saw that every, all the action was on the waterfront, that every picture mm-hmm. seemed to include water. And that's something that, as contemporary New Yorkers, I mean, the water's wonderful. We like jogging by the water, but we don't think of that as the right, locus. It's not where of, we live our lives. It's not where the action is. Yeah. It's not where the commerce is happening. So that was interesting. And so I sort of followed the water and immediately came to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which was the largest uh, builder and repairer of, of ships during of Allied ships during World War II. It was seven blocks from my home, and I had never even known much about it. So... As, so I, I And then I got involved in an oral history project interviewing women who had worked at the Navy Yard during the war years. And luckily, there was, was that, still— That was coincidental? Well, no. I, I got to know people at the Navy Yard, and they were partnering with the Brooklyn Historical Society. And this is a, per, a period that is really slipping from living memory much more right. severely now. I mean, people who have memories of World War II are now in their 90s. Um, then they were in their early 80s. So I started— participating in these conversations, I hadn't written a word. I was just trying to learn. And through these conversations and and letters that I I read while working on other books, certain kind of themes kept reemerging. One was organized crime, which was everywhere and it was it was acceptable quasi acceptable as a job description to be a gangster and that was left over from prohibition when the the quote unquote gangsters were basically liquor dealers supplying everyone right. with what they wanted um another was uh shipbuilding and how critical it was and then that sort of led to deep sea diving because there was a lot of civilian diving around New York during World War II. And this was all stuff I was learning before I'd started writing. Then I began writing. This, in this is before you even attempted the first draft and yes. done your. Uh, just amazing. just enough to get a sense of what are the elements. Had, so I, I, I know you, you start with place. So you're establishing your place or before you do characters and themes. Exactly. And not meaning zip code or city so much as an atmosphere. An atmosphere. And, and, a, and a very noirish atmosphere I knew I wanted. And so then I, I started writing, and it's a very blundering process because, you know, as with any improv, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. Um, and, and then once I got deeper into the story, I knew better, more specifically, what I might need to know about. So the research was ongoing. And, and yet the research had – the preliminary research had, ex- had already suggested to me so many elements of the story. Women working in industry, organized crime – the Irish American experience on the waterfront in New York, which is a, a huge and interesting subject, um, and one that interested me, especially being from Irish American uh, family on my father's side. So, these various elements sort of came together in in this gangly long first draft, and and, and then, then you wrote an outline. Yes, amazing. And that's how I always do it because it's only when I know what I have that I know what it could be. It's always fascinating to hear how everyone does it. How you do know? you do it? Well, I'm a I'm a relentless outliner. I I have an idea and then I work straight into an outline just because it's faster to put the framework together. Mm-hmm. And then I'll do another draft of the outline and another and I'm and then the research sort of as you say though is sort of well where do I need to research and then I sort of work the research into the places where I know I need it. 
the interesting thing, I'm now working on a nonfiction book, which has been totally different. So when I'm writing fiction, I write by hand on a legal pad and I can kind of write anywhere. But with nonfiction, I find I'm surrounded by stacks of secondary resources of books. As much as I want to avoid the computer when I'm writing fiction, I need it for looking up little things. So the nonfiction book was entirely on the laptop fiction by hand. I feel exactly the same. That's kind of fascinating. I actually, for um, someone that I spoke to for research for the Candy House, um, who has worked with uh, special ops and the military, um, explained to me that, and he's he's a kind of performance uh, specialist, how to get the absolute top performance out of people who are already top performers. And he explained to me something interesting. Um, his name is George Carlo. Um, that that there are different sides of our brains that are activated when we handwrite, especially in cursive, versus hmm. printing, which is much more like typing, and that and it and that one lends itself much more to sort of creative undertakings versus what you describe with nonfiction, which is you know re- resources all around you, and and it's much more an act of distillation than creation per se that's right. kind of what nonfiction is like you you're an expert now you have to somehow compress and, all of and that and tell expertise. someone else's story in a way and hopefully do some justice to it but yeah you're not creating a new story exactly so I find it exactly that same um, d- division of of technique do you see that in your journalism versus your your fiction writing totally as a journalist you know the writing part is the least of it. I mean, it's all of the it's all of the conversations and the often months of observation that really are what I'm are what I'm bringing to bear on this document that I finally write on a computer mm-hmm. in usually in a pretty short time compared to how long I've spent researching with lots of stuff around me. I mean, when you describe that, that's exactly piles of things. Yeah. So a couple other process questions, getting down to real nitty-gritty stuff, like coffee. I have a gallon capacity for coffee in the morning when I'm writing. Are you a coffee drinker while you write? I am totally a coffee drinker. I love I love coffee so much. Just the smell of coffee puts me in a good mood. <laughs> um, the only problem is occasionally I get this these racing heart things, which I'm having re- like this week. So I'm not drinking coffee this week, and I miss it so much. That has happened. So I, I start usually around 8.30 with a cup of coffee. And I'll go to one. By one o'clock, I've had four, five, sometimes six, and I'm just garbage the rest of the day. When I stop writing, if I've had a big writing day with a lot of coffee, it's it really I'm kind of shattered after that. Is but, it because you crash? Yes, I have a coffee crash in the afternoon. Yeah, no, I coffee is so which is great. fixed maybe by a gold rush or a <laughs> glass of wine. I can rebound. <laughs> Have you ever, would you drink a glass of wine and write fiction or no? No, absolutely not. Um, they don't seem to go together at all for me. Yeah. Um, that's like the reward. <laughs> it's not like Churchill dictating from the bath or something. You have to sit at the desk or, or where do you sit? Well, no, for fiction, I can sit anywhere because I'm writing by hand. I, in fact, I don't like to sit at a desk. I like to recline. I'm usually, and in fact, what I really love, and this was kind of a pandemic discovery, I love working outside. I always have. But during the pandemic, I actually started working outside in the winter with electric blankets. I looked extremely um, bizarre. I sometimes had a hat, um, boots, and sometimes even uh, hand and foot warmers. <laughs> and you're out there writing in that, my gosh. It was What I loved about it was there was something amazing about working in that really cold air. It's so bracing. And also, there was so much bird life. That particular year, the first year of the pandemic, was just 
It was extraordinary. I don't know if I'll keep doing that, but I, I love working outside and writing by hand makes that possible. And I de- my favorite is that I have these sort of lazy boy lawn chairs <laughs> that I just lean back in and it's very comfortable. <laughs> the, the neighbors are probably looking over like, my God. I think I do present a strange picture, um, you know, clearing a spot in the snow for myself in my lazy boy <laughs> and wrapping up in these electric blankets. It's pretty idiosyncratic. And I know you draft many, many times. You, I mean, I'm sure your first draft compared to what you hand in is there's a big distance there. It, very much so. I think if I, it's because I of the way I do it because it is so spontaneous and so um, improvisational that it's just inevitable that there's going to a lot of redrafting and reconception even is going to have to happen between that and a finished product. So I'll often, I number all my drafts, which I'm able to do because I usually edit by hand on hard copies. Again, just because it leads to better material. And often I'm I'm writing extra pages on the back and of, you know, the manuscript pages. So I'm able to number my drafts because I edit by hand on hard copies. And then I type in the changes and you know, I, I advance the number each time, which is useful because sometimes, I don't know if you find this, I lose something in the process of editing. And I, I know it was better at some earlier point, and I can't quite figure out what happened. And on a computer, that's really a problem because the editing happens in, gone. you know, yeah. it's a continuous present. But because I actually have a paper trail of previous drafts, I will sometimes be able to dig back down and find what got lost. But I do. I have had as many as, you know, like 70 drafts of a chapter. That's amazing. That's the longest. That was with Look at Me. And, you know, there will be certain like there's one chapter in the Candy House um, rhyme scheme that I that required the the smallest number of drafts that I've ever had to do of anything I've written. Which was Uh, eight. Eight. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's get into Candy House. I, I don't want to give away too much of this, but it is a companion novel to Goon Squad. And I have noticed online on on Twitter and things that people from book clubs are uh, posting images of these character maps that, because some characters are in Goon Squad and Candy House, there's a little bit of a Venn diagram there, but they're drawing the lines of all the relationships. I actually, when I was reading it, started one myself and I saw one that was way better on someone's book club Twitter feed. I thought uh, it was very impressive. But one of the things that I loved about the Candy House is your humor. And it's in Goon Squad and all your work, really. But there was a chapter, I think it was C Below, with the as just a series of text messages from different characters. And I was on a train reading it, laughing out loud. And, you know, it's one thing to see somebody laughing in the movie theater or in front of the tree. It's pretty rare to see someone with their nose in a book laughing out loud. So I was getting some funny looks. Um, <laughs> that makes me so it, happy. It's hard to do that on the page. And uh, I read that you, you said you owe... Some I don't know, not everything, but you owe to Martin Amos. Uh, I feel your like I humor studied there. the humor in his books. His early books were very, very funny. And what I learned was that a lot of his humor was achieved by pushing a situation that was already funny as f- further and further and further until it reached a point of absolute absurdity. And I think in a way, the the kind of the, the method that I use of this more improvisational writing tends toward humor sometimes, because if you, you know, it's the nature of improv that you lean into a line of action and, and keep pushing it. So I find that when I am doing my job well, I often reach a point, even in a scene that didn't begin comically, 
of comedy because I've followed logic to the point of absurdity. And I'm always very happy if I can reach a point where something is both both makes sense and is ridiculous and crazy at the same time. Mm -hmm. There's something so fun about encompassing both of those extremes in the same moment. And so we, you know, that I was very happy when I could do that Mm -hmm. in both Goon Squad and Candy House. Uh, I think it happened even more in Candy House. There were many funny, I, I, and I also love Martin Amos. His father, Kingsley Amos, had uh, Lucky Jim is one of my favorite books of, of all time. Best campus novel I've ever read. <laughs> right, and and right. absolutely laugh out loud funny, including yeah. physical comedy. Yeah. I mean, they're actually, they're, they're almost like pratfalls in Lucky Jim. Mm-hmm. And I love doing that. I mean, there's a scene in my novel, The Keep. I remember writing this and thinking, I'm, I'm, I've died and gone to heaven, where a guy is in a gothic castle and he is eavesdropping on people down below he leans so far out that he falls out of the window but the only thing that holds him is he has these really nice boots that he bought years ago that are still over the edge of the window sill in this um in this old castle but then he starts to realize that that his feet are slowly sliding out of the boots (laughs) and I, i mean it's just ridiculous it's like something you would see in a charlie chaplin movie but for some reason, it happened on the page. Yep. And those are fun moments. Your timing. You have a comedic timing in your writing. There's a sort of rhythm that, that lends itself. It's, it's not even just sort of like the story sometimes. It's, you just you hit it, just exactly the right notes on it. But you know what's funny? I'm not really a funny person in real life. So I was interviewing Gish Jen, the, the amazing writer, about her work, which is very funny. And I said, you know, Gish, how do you do humor? And she said, I'm just funny which was actually really (laughs) funny (laughs) and proof of her point right there. But that's not true of me. Like, I don't remember jokes. I never tell jokes. And I'm also not like a big teller of funny stories in person. So for some reason on the page, I'm able to, I have a looser, freer feeling that lets me be funny. And, And I think I appreciate it all the more because I'm not that person in real life. Uh, I know with Candy House, you said that some of this, I think you you made reference to, was written back almost in the Goon Squad days. And that in a a sense, you almost never stopped writing Goon Squad because it sort of bled into this. And could there be a third? Could you just keep going with the universe you've created here? Well, it's interesting. I was already working on one chapter of the Candy House while I was on my book tour for Goon Squad. So it really didn't end, although... I never thought, oh, it's too bad I already finished Goon Squad because this would I could have added this. I knew it was part of something very different because it was even further out structurally than anything I had in Goon Squad. So, so I knew that. Um, but the thing is, and, and I did keep going for another couple of years writing original material. I think what would make it hard to do a third, although I would love it, is that Candy House draws a sort of even larger circle around the Goon Squad characters, meaning that in some ways it's it's less linear than Goon Squad. I think it's as I can't go any further in that way. In other words, drawing an, an even wider circle around that wide circle would result in something that just wouldn't have the unity of a novel. Mm -hmm. So the question is, how would I do it? I would have to take a different approach, which is actually a fun thought. But whereas I already had a lot of instincts and impulses by the time 
Goon Squad came out about other things I wanted to do. I don't really have that yet about mm-hmm. this world. I mean, part of it is I'm working on two other projects and I'm just thinking about other things. But I think I would have to take a more focused approach, which would be which would be strange given the the broad the broad scope and scale of these two books. So mm-hmm. I'd have to it would have to be really different, but in a way it would have to be just to be desirable because I don't want to just keep doing the same thing again and again. I, I'm very open to it, I guess yep. is the answer, but I don't have an idea about how I would do it. Well, one of the things that I, I love you take on here in this book is the the perils and the benefits of technology. And you, I know you've made reference to the attention economy and you know these screens are great and they, there's a lot of benefits to it, but you do pay a price whether you know it or not. You, you can spend four hours doing this or you can spend four hours staring at your screen and as parents that's something i and i'm sure you think a lot you're a mother of two boys college age i have three kids 13 to 9 and so they have to be on it a little bit they don't have social media yet we probably might have to yield to that at some point but we're keeping them off that as much as we can but as a i really am of two minds of it because i grew up watching a ton of TV. I mean, I watched Hogan's Heroes and all the Saturday morning cartoons. And looking I back, <laughs> I, I don't have huge regrets about that. I think, you know, there was it was part of a cultural experience and I got something out of it. But where, where do you land on that with your, I mean, not only in the book, but with your life and your kids and how do you manage the, the tech that we're facing? Well, I, I also watched a fair amount of TV and I, I feel grateful for it, actually. I, I Not only do I not regret it, some of what I watched, even when I wasn't allowed to, fed directly into fiction. And one example of that is the very cheesy soap opera Dark Shadows, which was a gothic soap opera that had all the gothic tropes, you know, old castle, people coming to life out of graves, identical twins, of course, played by the same actress. And my mother didn't want me to watch this. And so when she wasn't home, I did after school. And I, I think that's honestly what got me interested in the gothic. So all, anything can be useful. All of that said, um, I, as a parent, am very wary of technology. I mean, now it's out of my hands, obviously. My kids are in college, but I was pretty, we were pretty stingy with them. And and one thing about technology is it changes so fast that even having kids, you know, as far apart in age as ours are, mine are 19 and 21, and your oldest is 13, those are like different generations technologically. So there were no... I didn't even get an iPhone till my oldest was thir- was 11. Um, so there was no way they were going to be getting iPhones. And most kids didn't have them at that time. But that's really changed. Right. Um, now, now the big push in the schools is wait till eight. Try to wait till eighth grade before you uh, get them. So, I, I, But nobody waits till eighth grade. I mean, our, our kids in fifth and sixth grade, 90% of the kids have them already. Yeah. And the problem is once you have, you know, a supercomputer in your pocket, there's it's almost impossible to control, obviously, what they're doing on it. So we were pretty stingy. They didn't like it. Um, I And I'm not sure what difference it made. I guess that, that's the big question. Mm-hmm. I mean, they played tons of imaginary games. They were extremely creative, were and are. But do I, do I think they wouldn't have been that way if we were a little more relaxed? No, I think they probably still would be. So mm-hmm. I wonder sometimes if all of those arguments were worth it. Our younger son says he's going to be way more strict. We weren't strict enough. Um, 
And I think our older one thinks we were too strict. So I don't know. I think we're all constantly at sea. I mean, and the problem, too, is, you know, sometimes we're not really able to control it as well as we think because they go to other friends' houses. Right. Just because they don't have one doesn't mean they're not finding a way. And half the time I'm wishing they did have it. You know, I would like to reach them at some point for you. If I could just send it, if only he had a phone, I could text him right now and know what's going on. Or he could text me and make things a lot simpler. But 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 your 13-year-old must have a phone. He has. He's had one for almost a year. Now that you you held out a long time, I hand it to you because in this environment that is late. He was the last in his class. But I, it, to your point, maybe it could have been sooner. I I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there are lots of kids who had it sooner who used it in the right ways and. You know. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that uh, that the kids are savvier sometimes than the adults about how to control some of this stuff, which I which I which is very I find very heartening. You know, I think they understand very well that the people who are going to go on to be productive are the people who are going to figure out how not to scroll endlessly. So, mm-hmm. for example, one of my kids mentioned um, that he's gotten rid of TikTok because he just found it was really a time suck. I know younger people who have have stopped social media mm-hmm. um, and uh, so I have a, a niece who actually only takes Polaroid photos oh, I love that um, so I feel That's like great. you know I have a lot of faith in in people's ability to you know to understand what they're up against and regulate themselves but as a parent I felt terror absolute terror of the power and the allure of this stuff and and my inability to make them not want it I could control what they got but you can't control what people want. It's it's very tricky. And then the other thing that that my kids understand very well is that the smartest people in the world are working in these industries with the specific job to make these apps and all of it so compelling that we can't stop doing it. That sort of insidious angle of this really is terrifying to me. I, I know there's a, I can't remember the name of the documentary, but there's one that talks about how they are so smart at figuring out how to suck you in and and keep you in that's and that is very scary because um it just feels like a lot to contend with especially for a young person but honestly for all of us (laughs) speaking of things changing i did want to round back to something i said in the intro about you being an important writer and you know a great and important writer but by important when i think of you as an important writer I'm, i'm not thinking about rising through the sales charts it's more about having an impact on the novel, the future of the novel, how we think about it, how we think about writing it, and even broader than the novel, how we think about language. And I was having a conversation with Nelson DeMille, who's a friend, and he started, he's been selling tons of books since the early 70s. And he was saying, Doug, you know, even in my career, which now is 50 years or so, he said, the language has changed. And if we go all the way back to James Joyce, and I don't mean just like adding bling to the dictionary, which is a thing, I think, from some years ago. But if you go back to James Joyce, it's apparent. The language, how the novels are written and read is different. From Nelson's career, it has changed. I think you could make the argument even from Goon Squad, maybe because of Goon Squad from 2010, it has changed. But what are your thoughts on the language changing, the novel changing? I mean, I think the novel was invented to be very flexible. And if you look at the earliest novels, they're pretty crazy. I mean, Don Quixote or Tristram Shandy, 
these are wild books. They're very meta. You know, there's a lot of sort of breaking through the fourth wall. And they're also very eclectic. They bring in all kinds of genres of writing. So legal documents. In Tristram Shandy, there's even there's a page that's just black. So he's using graphics. Um, so I feel like the novel can really do anything. And I and and I love that because it just feels like it has the resilience to survive even mm. in a world where there are so many threats to it. And I also think that novels do something that nothing else can do, certainly nothing image-based, because the novel, as I see it, is the only narrative art form that actually puts you inside the mind of another human being. You know, we're very image saturated, but images are not any if you're looking at a picture, you are by definition on the outside. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why we have voiceovers and, and all of that to kind of evoke the feeling of being inside this person as you are, in fact, watching them. And so I feel like. Fiction still has a unique role to play. That's right. I mean, the novel, it's not a passive experience in the way that just sitting back and taking in a movie is. And that is the, the crucial thing, because I think people, it is easier to watch, it is easier to rely on our eyes, and it's also very easy to get a little out of shape as a reader. Mm -hmm. And I even feel that, you know, if I haven't read 19th century fiction in a while, it's a little, it's, there's sort of a, a, a barrier to entry. The, it, the language feels hard. I have to sort of work a little bit to get my, um, sort of my, to get back in shape to read it, and then it becomes really fun. I think that's a, a part of the appeal of audio as well, radio, audio experiences, because there is also, the, it fires the imagination, because they're hearing our words, but they're now picturing you and I sitting old school in a room together, drinking the Gold Rush cocktail, but someone can evoke all of that for themselves. And the language is what's doing it. I am an audio freak. I am listening to fiction all the time, unless I'm interacting with, with another human being or reading a physical book. I mean, I listen while gardening, cooking, uh, you name it, uh, laundry, uh, walking, waiting for the subway. It's fantastic. I absolutely love it. And, you know, storytelling began as an oral tradition. People right. sometimes will say, well, I, I read your book. I mean, it was on audio. I hope that's okay. I feel like Okay, are you kidding me? You that's that's what it is. It is it, it the the power of the language, a lot of it resides in its music, in its rhythm and its sound. And in our writing group, we only read aloud. We never look at things on a page. We just listen to the person read their work and we we respond. Um so I so all of that is so important, but the thing that's worrisome is that as people do watch more and read less, reading is harder. And I think sometimes people feel like, ugh, reading is too hard. And it's only that their their reading muscles are just slightly out of shape and they just need to exercise them a little more, which would which would give them an experience that the image world cannot give. Yeah, I, I totally it is a muscle and I, I find when I haven't read for a while and I come back you can build up endurance in the same way that you know would be on a on a bike. Speaking of the the health and the future of the novel, I wanted to ask you about Pen America. You did a term there as president from 2018 to 2020. Yes, I did. It was almost three years. Um, so, so, so the audience knows I have just off the website. It's Pen America is the intersection of human rights and literature. Champion the freedom to write and celebrate creative expression. So, sort of the mission. Maybe people from every era would make the same claim, but it seems like an interesting 
time and an interesting challenge for that mission. It is. Well, for one thing, it's the centennial of PEN America. So it's actually existed for 100 years. It's also an international organization and was originally founded in Britain um, with the goal between the wars, uh, the, the First and Second World War, with the specific goal of activating writers to communicate and share information and work across geopolitical and and political division. And I think it's such a fantastic mission. I mean, it didn't prevent another war, obviously. um, But I think that that goal of insisting upon the importance of literary culture and using it as a as a point of connection among people all over is is so important and pen america is a is a non-political i mean it's a there it is a non-partisan organization there have always been both conservative and liberal writers and all, all the way across the spectrum in the organization and i think that's incredibly important because the goal is to be able to share and communicate across barriers. It's something that we've become incredibly bad at in this country. Um, There's this idea that, you know, we only want to talk to people who agree with us. You know, you could argue that that's not even really a conversation. I mean, if we're just, you know, getting pats on the back and hearing what we already think, what are we learning? And so PEN America, one of the things that has made it relevant lately is to try to make it possible for people to hear each other and to speak and to to speak so how do you how do you what are what are some of the things they're doing to because i i we need more of that my gosh well there are there are many many things um and this i'm just speaking um domestically because internationally we keep you know we we keep track of writers who are imprisoned and um you know there are there are places where uh the difficulties are are huge and violent um mm. the things that are that are happening to writers who don't agree with the powers that be but here pen america does a number of things one is it go it goes into college campuses and tries to facilitate discourse across division and create an environment where even a speaker that a lot of people may not agree with can still speak and those people who disagree can express their disagreement the idea is that Everyone should be allowed to talk. <laughs> so, are there professional facilitators at Penn America who can go in and because that sounds like a tough, tough role to fill there on some of these campuses? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think campuses are very eager to work on this because it's it's a difficult and thorny problem. Um, and they they we've done a lot of work with online harassment, which is a very chilling mm. effect and makes it very hard to have civil discourse. Um, there and and just a variety of initiatives, you know, all over the place. Working with students is a huge part of it. Um, we publish white papers that have addressed some of these issues, um, and just and and of course also just tried to to nurture and facilitate literary culture in in all of its forms. Um, we now have a number of uh, organizations in other cities. It had become a very New York-centric organization, and we've really tried to work against that, again, to try to ha- be, for example, in red states as well as blue states so that conversation and discourse can be encouraged um, and a love of literature and literary culture can provide uh, 
can provide a common interest and, and an occasion for communication. We also support local news, which is an extremely um, endangered right. species right now, and which it becomes very important in terms of protecting local interests, watching corruption. You know, local news was was a big watchdog in American society for a long time, and as that disappears, there's it's it leaves an enormous um, vacuum of of um, observation. Uh, and vigilance in in some of our communities. So there's there's an, a huge range of activities and initiatives that Penn is involved with. Well, th- that's a great organization, and thank you for serving as as president. I know you've got you know with seventy drafts of your novel going. It's not like you don't have other things going on in your life. So it's <laughs> great that it. you were in that post for a couple of years. I loved doing it. Um, and there's actually at the New York Historical Society there's an exhibit right now about the centennial with all kinds of artifacts from Penn's history, and you can learn about some of the writers who were involved. It's really really wonderful. That's Upper West Side of New York, uh, the Historical Society. Yeah, okay. um, in the I think upper seventy. Um, on on uh, Central Park West. Okay, I'll check that out. So to wrap it up, I have a couple of fire, quick fire questions that are sort of along the lines of like the New York Times book on your nightstand uh, approach. So uh, a couple of your favorite TV series that you would recommend. Well, I love The Sopranos. Um, I was a big Sopranos fan, and I think that actually it had a. Uh, it had a big influence on A Visit from the Goon Squad because I was thinking about serialization and serialized storytelling and how I could bring some of um, of that into this, this book I was working on, Goon Squad. Um, I also loved watching with my kids How I Met Your Mother. I thought that was a great series. It was just so much fun, and I really thought the ending worked. Um, and let's see. I, I've been watching also with another one of my kids, Hunter X Hunter, which is a um, it's a it's a Japanese um, animated uh, show, which is very strange and really interesting in its storytelling. Uh, I, I've I we've watched several different story arcs and. It, it, I find myself thinking about it and, and intrigued by certain elements of it that I think could ultimately impact my fiction. Right. Well, I'll, I'll check that one out. The Sopranos, that's a great pick, by the way. I, I rewatched. I watched it when it was first coming out, just rewatched it. So it's, you know, 25 years back. If you watch something in the mid-90s from, from 1970, it would never hold up. But Sopranos really holds up. I watched it. it it's something that could be released newly today. That's that so good? interesting. I know exactly what you mean about sort of returning to our old favorites and suddenly realizing, actually, they weren't that good. <laughs> <laughs> um, but The Sopranos, that was just in an, an, it was it did all the things a great novel can do. And that was really that it just made it so compelling. Is that Terrence Winter, or at least he was he was involved in it somehow, I think. That guy is amazing. Uh, favorite book festival. Domestic or international? Gosh, that's a tough one. Um, I hate to play favorites uh, with with book festivals. Um, Maybe just name a couple good ones. Okay, I'll name a few good ones. So I've had I've had a great. Well, I just was at the Mississippi Book Festival, which is in Jackson, Mississippi, and I want to give a shout out to them because I got there in early August and learned that you couldn't drink the water in Jackson, Mississippi. And I couldn't believe that I didn't know about like this. Like a Flint, Michigan thing? Yes. 
and there was bacteria in their water, and then their water was actually turned off altogether, and it finally made the national news. I was going to say, this is why we need local news back, to get this story on the pages. Exactly. Um, But I felt, I really felt such sympathy and also just um, appreciation for the, the kind of rugged good spirits of the people that I encountered in Jackson, Mississippi. Um, And it was a wonderful festival. It was their first one since the pandemic. Um, I love the National Book Festival in Washington. It's just they always pack these huge halls. They used to do it outside, but they had some really muddy um, times that I think made them go inside. But it's just such a reminder that there really are still lots of people who love to read. Um, Brooklyn Book Festival, that's a fantastic one. I think one thing I love, like the National Book Festival, it's just one day. It's just this day crammed with writers and writing. Um, and so, uh, and it's relatively new, and it's become a really, you know, successful, vibrant festival that brings in people from all over. And I think the last one I'll mention is actually Pan America's World Voices Festival, which is fantastic because it's so eclectic with a real emphasis on bringing international voices to American readers, which is something that, you know, American readers, and I include myself, we're often kind of weak on reading, writing, and translation. So the World Voices Festival is just a fantastic way in which Pan America draws on its kind of global um, networks to bring really interesting international writers into New York. All right. So let's do the classic books on the nightstand. And you can't name one that's, you know, begging for a blurb, something you no, something you paid money for. Um, well, I've been reading a lot of 1950s detective fiction, which is really fun. Is this a tell about what the next novel from you is going to be? We'll see. <laughs> Here's hoping. Um so let's see. Um, so I have a number of books like that. I actually, you know what? So I'm very interested in murder mysteries, and I've been reading widely in that genre. And while I have read a lot of Agatha Christie, I've actually not read The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is an early book of hers. And a friend was raving about it the other night. So I think that is going to be my next read. For this next one, I think every writer seems to have a, a humbling experience about this one. But the fewest number of people who ever attended one of your book events? Zero. Zero. You have a zero. I have a zero. <laughs> 80 chairs. It was it was in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and it was at a Barnes and Noble back in the days when there was when there was still borders. So I think you could argue this was not the right place to be reading in Ann Arbor, but it was also after the school year had ended. So the students were gone in a college town. So there were some reasons. But there was also the fact that I was a totally unknown writer. Right. right. It's so hard. (laughs) You know, it's so hard. I mean, and the bookstore, you know, they felt terrible, too. They'd been very optimistic and put out all those chairs. And that that was really tough. Um, You know, they announced it a couple of times. And uh, so I shopped instead. I bought a bunch of books. (laughs) Right. Sometimes you just get the one person and it's like, well, let's just go around the corner and I'll buy you a drink and tell you about the book. Har- Harlan Coben, I shall, I'll tell his story for him since he's not here, but he one time had a, if there can be a less than zero, he was at a bookstore doing an event when he was not well known and they had a desk out for him in front of the bookshelves and he's sitting there with books on the desk. Nobody comes. Finally, one guy wanders over and he's already, you know, he, he'd been doodling around. He had a pencil like pinched between his lip and his nose, making a mustache out of it and the guy comes over, he's like, would you like to be? He's like, no, no, you're, you're blocking the view. I, I need to get that book from behind you on the shelf. <laughs> I was just like utter, utter uh, 
It's agony. You know, there have been so many moments in my career when I just thought it's not going to work. You know, there, there. I think it's so important that fledgling writers know that those moments come so often early on. And and in my case, it really lasted a long time because I was not hugely well-known until Goon Squad. And, you know, it's, it's hard to fill a house. Mm-hmm. People have a lot of other things they might want to do. And so it can feel incredibly discouraging. But I often find that even in, I mean, that, that a zero is a zero. I don't have much redemptive to say about that. But even... At times when I've had very, very small audiences and, you know, given it my all, I felt like I reached those people and sometimes good things have come of it. So I, I think it is just one of those moments where you're you're there for the people who are there for you. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, you just don't know what what good might come along as a result. Well, for anyone who's ever been rejected from the Iowa Writers Workshop or or anywhere else, you certainly are, are an inspiration. So last question, I mean you actually just gave a pretty good piece of advice, but how about one more piece of advice for really on anything, on parenting or writing or anything? You know, I'll give another piece of writing advice, uh, which is that I I have found that being willing to write badly has been a real asset for me. Because this feeling that the writing has to be good is so stymieing. And the difference between an empty page and a page that's full of stuff that may not be that great, uh, but but it's it exists, is all the difference in the world. So what I often say to people who, who want to get into the habit of writing is just just write. Write anything and then mm-hmm. improve it. I think this feeling of sort of waiting for the good stuff or almost feeling like you're performing as you write is is such a hindrance. I mean, the great thing about writing is it really is private. No one ever has to see it. It's actually not a performance. And so that's a great asset that we have as writers. And and I think the willingness to write often and badly is is often a way to get work done. Well, that's great advice. You have to get out there and get started. Yeah. Jenny, it's been a pleasure and so fun talking to you. Thanks for coming in. A pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.